It's my plan for us to spend a few weeks uh, looking at uh, the next 12 Psalms. Remember in 2020 we looked at Psalms 1 through 12 and uh, we'll, Lord willing, cover 13 through 24 uh, in this summer. So uh, Psalm 13, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you if you came without one. Um, whatever means you need to uh, look at a copy of God's Word, please do so. So you can follow along. An outline of courses on the back of today's bulletin. I'd like to read our passage before we begin today. So let's hear the Word of the Lord. Psalm 13, verses 1 through 6. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is uh, God's holy and inerrant and authoritative word. May he bless what we read. Let's ask for his help as we look at these verses this morning. And so, Father, we do come humbly and plead that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, that we would be receptive to what your word has to teach us this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray for your grace. Uh, I pray for your grace to uh, preach and proclaim your truth. Father, clear my mind, strengthen my throat, uh, quicken us all with your good spirit, and we entrust ourselves now to you, uh, Christ Jesus, and ask in your name. Amen. The date was October 21st, 1961. Uh, the event took place in Ankara, Turkey. Uh, it was during their Republic Day celebrations. The uh, Turkish president at that time was a man named Samal Gersel. And he beamed with pride as he and his chauffeur roared away from Ankara's parliament building in the first automobile ever made in Turkey. The car was a Devrim, which means revolution. It was entirely designed and produced in Turkey. And as uh, Gersel roared away, his chauffeur driving, just a hundred yards down the road, his smile froze as the engine coughed and then died. Someone forgot to put gasoline in the tank. So much for a revolution in cars, huh? The Devrim, uh, as a result, became the butt of jokes for years after. According to uh, a researcher at Johns Hopkins, people often forget things. I include myself in that category. Perhaps you do too. Uh, here's a list of things that people forget most. 83% of us forget names. So those of you who can't remember who the person sitting next to you is, you're in great company. If, if it's your spouse, you're in deep trouble today. 
Uh, 60% of us forget where we've put things. 57 of us, 57% of us forget telephone numbers. I, I think it's probably much higher now. Nobody memorizes numbers anymore. We keep them in our cell phones. Uh, we can't hardly remember our own cell phone number because we don't call it. 53% can't quite remember that word on the tip of their tongue. 49% of us can't remember what someone said to us. 42% can't recall people's faces. Again, if this is your spouse you're thinking of, you are again in deep trouble. And if you can't remember whether you've just done something or just finished something, you're among 38% of the population. Since you and I are so forgetful, we often transfer that to our God. And thinking He must be just like us, we assume that God is forgetful as well. He created us in His image as the old saying goes, and we've been returning the favor ever since, creating him in ours. Sometimes it feels like he's forgotten us, that he's abandoned us. It's such a common occurrence among those who follow Christ that it would, be, it would not be a stretch to say that 100% of Christians experience this at some point in their Christian journey. If you are among those who have never experienced this, I invite you to come up and finish my sermon for me. <laughs> this is the very thing David is struggling with in this psalm open before us this morning. Uh, he expresses this sentiment in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And this is not the only time David felt this. Uh, he says the same thing many times in the book of Psalms. One scholar named Gerald Wilson observed within the Psalter, this divine hiddenness is a dominant theme, especially in the first two-thirds of the book of Psalms. So what do we do? when we experience the same thing that David is voicing here, when it seems like the Lord has forgotten us, when it feels like he's, a, he's deserted us, when, when we feel abandoned by God, what course of action should we take when we experience what David is? Well, we'll see in, in Psalm 13 that David passes through three stages in his struggle with the Lord. Uh, in his struggle with God's hiddenness, his seeming absence. And as we observe the three stages David passes through, we'll discover what we must do when it feels like God has forgotten us as well. The first stage we find David in, uh, there's the picture of the car, by the way, forgot to show you that. It's a beauty, isn't it? Uh, the first stage David passes through is his pain. Uh, David passes uh, through this struggle, this distress. He's extremely distressed as Psalm 13 begins. And he goes on in uh, the first two verses to give us four reasons for his pain and distress. The first reason that he gives us is because it's a long, drawn-out struggle. 
whatever trouble is going on in David's life, uh, it's gone on for a long, long time. Note the repeated phrase here in verses 1 and 2, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, I mentioned just a moment ago that David makes this desperate cry in several places in the Psalms. Uh, We hear it first in Psalm 6. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 6, 3. Psalm 35, 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Psalm 89, 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like a fire? And 16 other places, David again uses this same Question, Lord, how long? Our psalm is unique in that this question appears four times in two verses. This reveals uh, the intensity of and, and the desperation of David's emotion here. It, it's, it's a raw expression of his soul. Charles Spurgeon observed, Time flies with full-fledged wing in our summer days. But in our winters, he flutters painfully. A week within prison walls is longer than a month of freedom. Maybe you're in a long, drawn-out struggle this morning. A relationship with with a child has gone south. A relationship with a parent Perhaps you're struggling with uh, a long illness, maybe a lifelong condition, or some other circumstance, and your question is the same as David's as we gather here today. Lord, how long? How long is this going to last? The first reason for his distress and pain is that this is a long, drawn-out struggle. The second reason for his pain that he mentions is a distant God. Uh, To David, it seems as though God has abandoned him. Again, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, uh, Note the phrase, hide your face, there in, in verse 1. When God hides his face, it's a sign that you are alienated from God. Uh, This phrase is even used to indicate that someone has fallen under a covenant curse. That's what it feels like to David. It feels like that he's been cursed by God. Listen to uh, the book of Deuteronomy mention this same phrase, referring to the people of Israel. The Lord says to Moses, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they've done, because they have turned to other gods. Job frequently asked the same question David did uh, in Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? This is what David is asking the Lord. Lord, why do I feel cast off by you, forsaken by you? 
Why does it seem you've left me? And then, in contrast to hiding his face, uh, uh, when the Lord lets his face shine on people, it's a sign of blessing. Consider these words you often hear from me at the end of the service. Uh, this is the blessing the Lord taught Aaron and the, and the priests to pronounce over Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The prophet Daniel asked and prayed for this very thing. Uh, Daniel prayed, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Those of you who, who have uttered these words know the agony of how this feels. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, summed up this feeling of being forgotten. And he says, does David not portray in fitting words that most bitter anguish of spirit which feels that it has to do with a God alienated, hostile, cold-hearted, relentless, whose wrath is eternal. This is a state in which hope despairs and yet despair hopes at the same time. And all that lives is the groaning that cannot be uttered. This no one understands who has not tasted it. David is in pain because God seems distant. He feels as though the Lord has abandoned him, has him under a covenant curse, has hidden his face. There's another reason I want you to note uh, and that's a depressed soul. The third reason for David's pain and distress. He's anxious and discouraged because of this uh, feeling that the Lord has left him. Notice his anxiety in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul? And look at the phrase, take counsel. It means to think about a course of action after consulting with someone. But there's no someone other than himself. He's taking counsel in my soul, he says. The picture that this little phrase paints for us is David is having a committee meeting in his heart. He's holding a planning meeting with himself and, and he's voicing possible solutions to his, to his struggle. One scholar says, plan after plan suggests itself, it is resolved upon and then abandoned and hopelessness is utterly pointless. Again, listen to Martin Luther who says it well. His heart is like a raging sea in which all sorts of counsels move up and down. He tries on all hands to find a hole through which he can make his escape. He thinks on various plans and still is utterly at a loss what to advise. In other words, David is worried. He's anxious, keeps trying to think of solutions, but is it a complete loss? You do the same thing in the middle of the night, don't you? Now, what about this? No, that won't work. And what about this? You, you hold the same committee meeting in your, in your mind 
as you lay there at 3.30 a.m. wondering what to do. And then we see his anxiety. Notice, notice this, his discouragement in the second half of verse 2. His, his depression. Uh, it says, And have sorrow in my heart all the day. Sorrow refers to grief. It can even be translated anguish. And this anguish, this torment is something that David feels at the very depth, the very core of who he is. He says, in my heart. That, that is the cockpit, the control center of, of the human. Uh, he experiences this grief at, at the very center of who he is. Another version says, how long shall I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. You've known this at times, haven't you? And what makes it perhaps worst of all is David doesn't seem to know why this is happening. In other Psalms, he confesses his sin. He, he repents, but there's no mention of, of sin here. There's no confession. And, and we conclude there's nothing that the Spirit has brought to his mind that he knows of to confess. Please note this, friend. This teaches us not to be too harsh or quick to judge those suffering under depression. Charles Spurgeon makes this remark, who himself suffered from severe doubts of depression. He cautions us, it is all very well for those who are in robust health and full of spirits to blame those whose lives are sicklied or covered with the pale cast of melancholy. But the malady is as real as a gaping wound and all the more hard to bear because it lies so much in the region of the soul that to the experience it appears to be a mere matter of fancy and diseased imagination. Reader, never ridicule the nervous and the hypochondriac. Their pain is real. Though much of the malady lies in the thought processes, it is not imaginary. David is in this place where... Uh, the third reason from his pain, he says, is because of his depression and discouragement. Anxious and, and discouraged as a result of feeling like the Lord has left him. And then we come to a fourth uh, reason, is a dominant enemy. It seems to David that the other side is winning. Look at the very end of verse 2, this last line. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Exalted means to be lifted up, to, to experience an elevation in your status or position, to, to win a victory, to win a triumph, to be honored, to be great. And he doesn't tell us the circumstances around which this psalm was composed. It, it, it might refer to King Saul. It might refer to his son Absalom. It might refer to another unknown enemy. We're not told. All we know from David's words is the enemy seems to be on the rise. The, the bad guys appear to be winning. And this is a fourth reason for his distress. Uh, uh, this dominant enemy, he feels like he's losing the battle. This is, this is David's pain. 
his distress, his struggle. And these four reasons go in, into that and, and are the reasons. It's, it's a long, drawn-out struggle. He, he believes uh, God is distant from him. And as a result, his soul is depressed and the enemy has become dominant. But from this first stage, we move into the second stage of this struggle he has. And then in the second stage, we'll hear David's plea. We'll hear David's plea. And two things I want to point out to you in David's plea. The first thing he, he, uh, we see here is his requests. And they come rapid fire one after the other in verse 3. Uh, notice, uh, first David asked the Lord to consider him in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. This term, uh, consider, means to look at someone, uh, to observe with care, to pay close attention uh, to someone. And, and David, who feels forgotten, uh, as he mentioned in verse 1, is asking the Lord to look on him. Lord, pay attention to me. Uh, don't forget me, but notice me. <coughs> Lord, don't hide your face from me. Look at, look at me and, and notice my circumstances. And then the second request he makes is for the Lord to answer him. Consider and answer me, Lord. Uh, instead, of, uh, instead of forgetting about him, Lord, be gracious. Hear and grant what I'm asking you. And lastly, David asks that his strength would be new, renewed. Look at this final phrase of verse 3. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Curious phrase. Uh, that David uses, it's drawn from 1 Samuel 14, where we see Jonathan uh, express these same words. Excuse me. <coughs> when Saul's son Jonathan was pursuing the Philistines, uh, Jonathan found honey in the forest. He dipped the end of his spear in it and ate some, not knowing at the time that his father Saul had forbidden anyone from eating until the battle was over, until the Philistines had been defeated. But day, uh, Jonathan does eat the honey. He doesn't know about his father's edict. <clears throat> Listen to the effect. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright the honey renewed his strength and energy uh, to, so that he could continue pursuing the Philistine uh, army. And David here is requesting the same thing. He's asking for physical support. He's asking for fresh strength and energy like Jonathan received from the honey. James Montgomery Boyce comments, he asked God to give light to his eyes, that is to preserve him and to restore him to full physical and mental health. These are his requests. Consider, answer, light up my eyes. And from the requests, he follows on with the reasons for these requests. These are introduced in the ESV uh, with the word lest. Uh, notice what it says uh, following in uh, verse 3. 
uh, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. David's very life is in danger. Uh, if, if the Lord doesn't help him, it's curtains, as they say. If the Lord doesn't answer, David will be likely killed by his enemies. Uh, one man says, without the hope for deliverance, the psalmist can only anticipate rapid decline, defeat, and death. Lord, if you don't help me, I'll die. He goes on to list another reason. Not only death, but he's also facing defeat, uh, is what it says in verse 4. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This word shaken means to be toppled, to be overthrown, uh, to be removed from power. And we can possibly conclude here that David is already king as he's writing these words. And that if enemies win, uh, he will no longer be the king of Israel. This might have taken place again when Absalom uh, rebelled against him, uh, perhaps some other enemy. And not only will be he removed from power, the enemy will rejoice. The enemy will trample the name of the Lord in the dirt. God's fame will be tarnished. And, and David is saying here, lest my foes rejoice, Lord, you have a stake in this as well. Lord, my, my foes will gloat over you. My foes will hold back the spread of your kingdom and your fame on the earth. Lord, deliver me from these enemies. Hear me that you may be glorified, that your kingdom may advance. These are the reasons for David's request. And they form the second stage of his struggle. We hear his plea. This is also what you and I are called to do when it feels like God has left us. It's an odd thing to think about. The, the God who feels like he's for, who, who has forgotten him, he turns around and, and prays immediately. The God who David feels like has left him he lifts up his voice and cries out to him regardless. How important that when you and I face the similar distress as David does, that we do the same thing. That we cry out to the Lord. That's what we're called to do when we're forgotten. Feel forgotten. Uh, so Psalm 50 uh, invites us, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And then we're encouraged to do the same thing in Philippians 4. Uh, note this familiar verse, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so I want to ask you if you have made your pain known to the Lord. Have you made your plea to the Lord God in your distress, in your long, drawn-out struggle? Have you cried out to Him in the depression that results? Have you made your plea, God, hear me. God, answer me. Lord, light up my eyes. 
Give me strength. The Lord encourages us to do the same thing as David did in verses 3 and 4. Well, it follows then, of course, the third stage of his struggle uh, that we come to in verses 5 and 6. Casting his weight on what he knows to be true, David looks forward to the Lord's deliverance. Again, I want to point out two things in this third stage of, of David's struggle. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that there's a decision to be made. There's a decision to be made. David shifts his focus from himself to the Lord. If you would notice verse 1 again, and just notice the pronouns in the first two verses. You, me, you, me. I, my, 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 me. And and from this uh, reoccurrence of uh, the personal pronoun, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson concludes that David had developed an obsession with himself and his own thoughts and feelings. This is part of our problem. We We think with our feelings or more accurately, We let our feelings do our thinking for us. Did you hear what he said? We think with our feelings or we let our feelings do the thinking for us. I would put it to you that that's our problem most of the time. What's what's wrong with that approach? to let our feelings do our thinking for us. The problem in relying on your own thoughts and feelings is that our feelings and thoughts are most likely wrong. Our feelings quite often do not reflect what is actually true. Look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And let's just stop and ask ourselves, is that a true statement? Did God really forget David? Really? Not according to our scripture reading this morning, where he adamantly states that he could not forget his children. Isaiah 49, 14, but Zion said, And they're asking the same question. They're they're having the same struggle. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord replies, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And there's plenty biologically we could go into there. I'd rather not. A nursing mother cannot forget the child that is nursing. The Lord continues, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, that is the city of Jerusalem, your walls are continually before me. And so let's just observe, shall we, that what felt true to David was in fact not true. God had not forgotten him. God had not abandoned him. 
No matter how it may feel, genuine believers can rest assured in the, in the reality that God will never leaves us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Commenting on, on our unreliable motions, listen to what pastor and author David Murray says. Very significant statement. It is important for Christians in such situations like David's to doubt, question, and even challenge the accuracy of their feelings as they usually do not reflect the facts. People suffering from depression tend to take their emotions as the truth. They let their feelings determine the facts. The problem is, they're not true, as in the case of David. God had not forgotten him. But that's what it felt like. It felt like he was forgotten and abandoned. But that was not the case. Notice what David does. And note the shift in his focus. Note, note the decision he makes in verse 5. But, oh boy, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times to the guys on Wednesday night. And that's a lot, I'm telling you. But is perhaps one of the most important words in the Bible. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Trusted is a familiar term, but let me, let me park here for a second. It means to rely upon, to put your confidence in, to believe in. And so here's what David has done. He has stopped trusting in what his feelings tell him is true, and now turns to what he knows to be true. He turns away from the feeling that God has abandoned him to rely on the certainty that God's love for him would not and could not fail. This is a significant step. I, I encourage you to take note of this decision. To stop relying on what feels true. And turn instead to what you know is true. What is true is that God loves us with steadfast love. Forgive me for repeating myself. This phrase is another of the most important words in the entire Old Testament. Steadfast love translates one Hebrew term, hesed. It is... Uh, it is the kind of love and commitment that a superior makes to an inferior, a, a king to his subject, a master to his slave, uh, because the superior has entered into a, a covenant with his servant or employee, the king will remain faithful. Uh, one man translates it like, like this or explains it this way. It is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself, sustaining, assuring, 
It has a sustaining, assuring element about it. The ESV always, nearly always translates it steadfast love. Your version might say loving kindness, faithful love. It is referring to this essential and precious Hebrew word hesed, God's loyal, unending, faithful love. Instead of his feelings that go up and down with the weather and his circumstances, he turns to what is absolutely reliable. The Lord's steadfast love. Think of what it would mean for the Lord to stop loving us. It would mean that he would be breaking his covenant. That means he would no longer be holy. Because he doesn't keep his word. And that would mean that he's no longer God. His very being hangs on his utter reliability. The utter certainty that God loves those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Well, uh, this gentleman goes on to illustrate this kind of love uh, with a story from the life of a Scottish pastor named William Still. And he explains, here I often think of a story William Still tells of the early days of his pastorate in Aberdeen, Scotland. He recalls a period when the dominant theme of his preaching seemed to be judgment and hell and the consequences of turning a deaf ear to the gospel. He kept hammering away at this and he was convinced the Lord had led him to do so. But he knew it was getting people down. Mr. Still had a dear aunt who served him as cook and housekeeper. And one Sunday at lunch, during this hell is the theme du jour, period, she voiced her concern. I'm sitting there with them in the pew, she said, and taking it all. She went on, I feel for them. Oh, Willie, is there no love in the gospel? Still admitted that her query, query had shaken him. But he responded that he could preach nothing but what the Lord had laid on his heart. Well, his aunt replied, if it goes on, there will soon be no one there but you and me. And he shot back, and will you desert me then? She replied, never. I committed myself to you and the Lord's work here, and I will never leave you. He says, that's hesed, steadfast love. And he concludes, if you were not swallowed up by the darkness or swept away by the distress, it will be because in the midst of it all, you have a God and Savior who says, I have committed myself to you, and I will never leave you just to be assured of unfailing love makes all the difference. How essential it is for you and me to come to this point, this third stage where David arrives. 
and make this same decision. And I know this is difficult to stop relying on what we feel to be true. It's hard. Nothing seems truer or more real than our feelings about something at times, uh, at least in my thinking. How could it not be true? But often and almost always, feelings are not true, do not reflect reality. What instead reflects reality? Truth. The truth that God loves us with his steadfast, unfailing love. And to base our view of reality on that instead of our waffling feelings. The worst advice that a song could ever give came out several years ago. Uh, Listen to your heart or follow your heart. Please, just chuck that, okay? That's bad advice. Especially when Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is desperately wicked. Well, the prophet Jeremiah describes this same love in the book of Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. See, that's why God can't forget you. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, His steadfast love could never end. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Well, so instead of what is, uh, feels true, David shifts his focus to what is true, what is certain, what is factual. And what is true and certain and factual is the steadfast love of the Lord. He could never forsake David because the Lord is faithful to his covenant. You realize, do you realize that you can rely on this certainty too? Could I? I double dog dare you. (laughs) That you can rest your full weight on this same certainty. Like David, to turn your focus away from from what your feelings tell you and focus on what God's Word tells you. Well, and how would I do that? Well, uh, here's a start. You uh, You could memorize this verse. Memorize that verse. What are you saying, man? You mean use my brain and put it in my mind. That's what I'm saying. I don't mean to insult you, and I, I didn't, I'm not meaning that. Yes, put it in your mind so that when you have those feelings that you have something your soul can draw up, some truth. This would be, in my mind, uh, girding yourself with the belt of truth. You, you fasten it up a notch and tighten it and say, no, this is true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Who cares what I think? This is true. And other verses like this. Put them in your brain. File them away so that you can draw them up when you need to. Well, in this third stage that David arrives at, there's a decision to be made. And it's a decision you have to make as well. 
But there's something else here that makes the decision worthwhile, and that's also to see that there is a destination to enjoy. And this is where David's struggle finally takes him. Look at verse 5 again, and please note the relationship between this first phrase we looked, we've looked at and, and the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, and notice how, how they're connected. Beginning in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Note the verb tense, because it is important. Uh, I have trusted, past tense. That's the decision he's made to shift his focus and shift his attention to the bedrock of God's steadfast love. And look what follows. Look what follows in the rest of verse 5. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Note the verb tenses. Those are both future tenses. I shall rejoice and will sing because David has reoriented his thinking and, and is trusting in the absolute certainty of steadfast love. He is confident that the Lord will deliver him from this struggle. He'll be able to sing about the Lord's bountiful and generous provision. And that's possible for us too. As hard as that can sound to believe that I will sing again because God loves me and His love will continue. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing again. He's confident that the Lord will uh, both deliver him and he'll be able to sing about it. So David's moved from his pain in verses 1 and 2 through his plea to arrive here at God's peace in 5 and 6. Listen to Charles Spurgeon comment on this change in his tone. What a change is here. Lo, the rain is over and gone, and the time of the singing of birds has come. The mercy seat has so refreshed the poor weeper that he clears his throat for a song. If we've mourned with him, let us now dance with him. David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He begins many of his psalms singing, sighing. He begins many of his psalms sighing and ends them singing. The destination is, is God's peace. And... Again, Paul talks about the same destination in good old Philippians chapter 4. Our men have been studying it this year. Uh, I showed you verse 6 earlier that we're encouraged to make our plea to the Lord. As Paul said, do not be anxious about anything. You're familiar with these words. They're so essential. Another great verse to have in your vault to memorize it. But what I want you to see is that when we make this plea to the Lord, I want you to see what follows in the very next verse. There is a cause and effect relationship between these two verses. And verse 7 goes on to say, and, uh, a very important word, and, it shows there's a connection. And, as a result of that, this, and when you have 
cast all your anxiety upon him when you've uh, made prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is David's peace. Casting his weight on what he knows to be true, he looks forward to the Lord's deliverance. And we've seen these two things I've mentioned. There's a decision to make, but there's also a destination uh, to be be reached, to enjoy the peace of God. So, friends, what should we do in a... It feels like God's forgotten us. When it it feels like He's deserted us. When it feels like He's abandoned us. When we feel like we're under His curse. When we find ourselves distressed or deserted like David in the first stage. We cry out to the Lord with the same kind of plea. And when, like David, we focus on what we know to be true about God instead of what feels true, we'll arrive at the same place that he did in the third stage, the peace of God. Let me pray for us as we prepare for baptism. And now, Father, we pray. I pray for those here. uh, Those here... Some of those here, uh, us here today can, can say these words just as David did with complete honesty because we are in the same place, maybe in verses 1 and 2. And I pray by your gracious spirit, Father, you would bring all of those through to the second stage that they would lift up their voices and cry out to you. And Father, like David, may they too reach this third stage where they can look forward to your deliverance and to singing about their deliverance because they've fixed their minds on you. God, this is your work. Please perform your work in our hearts. Please help us to make this decision to shift our mind from our feelings to your facts, and believe in the objective truth of your word. Father, enable us by your good spirit to do this. We pray this through Christ. Amen.